Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 40 years, Bishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of inspiration and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will continue our retreat that Bishop Sheen has been giving us over a number of weeks, and so today's reflection will be entitled, Mary, Mother, and Spouse. And we'll follow up that retreat reflection with a copy of one of his television shows, Life is Worth Living, and that program will be on how mothers are made. And so there is a motherhood theme here. And as we celebrate in the church calendar, the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, it's very appropriate that we do that. So I encourage you all now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Whenever there is a decline of love, of celibacy, chastity, the sanctity of marriage, and the love of the church, there is always a decline in the love of Our Lady. Because it is through her intercession that these virtues, these sanctities, and the church prosper. A professor at the University of California wrote in one of his last books, Today, whenever you hear a good word said about Our Lady, you can be sure that he is a Protestant. And if you hear Our Lady criticized, you can be sure that he is a Catholic. That is an exaggeration. But there has been a decline in the devotion to Our Lady, and in order to revive it, we shall meditate on Our Lady first as a dream, second as a mother, and third as a spouse. First as a dream. Often in the human order, we love in ideal before we love in fact. As a man lives his life, ideas, images, dreams, readings, and imaginations are like so many separate pieces of the mosaic, until finally there is formed in his mind an ideal image of one that he loves. And then that person appears, and he says, this is the one I love. It does not always happen that there is love first in ideal, but in the divine order it is true. God loves an ideal before he loves in fact. And from all eternity, God had an image of his mother. And that was the meaning of the 
epistle to the Proverbs, which we read. Before the mountains and hills were made, before the sea was shut up with doors, and before the earth came to be, I was. The first immaculate conception was really in the mind of God. For he had dreamed and he had thought of her. Every artist pre-exists his painting and his creation. Whistler was once asked how he came to paint such a beautiful picture of his mother. And he said, you know how it is. One tries to make one's mummy just as nice as one can. Well, with God, it was no different. And when he made the first man and woman, after exceeding preparation, he prepared a garden for them. As God alone knows how to make a garden beautiful. And then came the fall by the abuse of freedom. And God willed now to make a new paradise. And from all eternity, God thought of a new Eden. A new Eden over whose portals the word sin would never be written. And this new paradise of the incarnation, this new paradise to be gardenered that the Adam knew would be the Blessed Mother. She was therefore the dream, and therefore I believe she is the ideal woman whom every man loves without knowing it. And she is the kind of woman that every woman subconsciously wants to be. She's the ideal of both virginity and motherhood. In all virginity, there's something ungiven. In all motherhood, there's something surrendered. In Mary, there was nothing ungiven. There was nothing surrendered. And she, therefore, became the perfect ideal and prototype of virgins and mothers. So she was first a dream in the mind of God. Then she became a mother. And out from the great white throne of light, there came an angel of light. The angel descended into the valley of, over the plains of Esdraelon, and came to this virgin kneeling in prayer and said, Highly favored one of God. And then she would ask, she was asked, Would you give God a man? Will you give him a human nature? And she said, How can this be? I know not man. Now, the word no in Scripture is always used to signify the union of man and woman. Hence, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Solomon knew her not. Paul, husbands possess your wives in knowledge. The New English Bible has a very good translation of it, namely, how can this be, seeing that I am a virgin? I know not man. Now, there can be no conception without fire and passion, and here 
the fire is supplied by the Holy Spirit. And Mary then agrees to give to God a human nature. And when she does this, there is something that really should not disturb our minds, namely the virgin birth. After all, now in this church there are certainly some converts. These converts can remember the exact moment in their lives when Christ was born in them. Many of us were baptized as infants. But if we had a second conversion and really began to give our lives to Christ, we can remember when Christ came and took possession of us. For example, Lydia was converted by Paul. Her ears were open to the word. That is the way it is described in the Acts of the Apostles. When therefore we receive grace and the gift of faith, what happens? God comes into our mind and his truth possesses our intellect so that we have God's truth in the mind. God takes possession of our will because he becomes the primary object of our love. And God takes possession of the body to a great extent too because the body becomes the temple of God. And St. Paul says, use your body as a reasonable service. And again, the body belongs to the Lord and the Lord belongs to the body. So in every Christianization of a soul, you have what? You have God taking hold of that person. But God does not lay hold of us in each and every way and in exactly the same way because we do not give ourselves completely. Some have God's truth much more intimately and deeply than others. And he possesses the will of others far more strongly than those who are making compromises. And so it is with the body. But this is all done by the hearing of the word of God, by the perception of the word. Now we take the next step. If then God takes hold of our intellect and our will and our body, should it be surprising that there might be some creature in the world that would be so completely possessed by God that he would not only seize the will and the mind, but the body. And Christ would be physically conceived in her as Christ is spiritually conceived in us. In other words, there would be conception by perception. That is the virgin birth. T.K. Chesterton has some lovely lines about the motherhood of our Lord. And I will read you a few of his quatrains. The first is the reference to her as the gate of heaven. When God turned back eternity and was young, ancient of days, grown little for your mirth, as under the low arch the land is bright, peered through you, gate of heaven, 
and saw the earth. House of gold. For shutting out his shining skies a while, built you about him for a house of gold. To see in pictured walls his storied world return upon him as a tale is told. Feet of wisdom, or young on your strong knees and lift it up. Wisdom cried out, whose voice is in the street, and more than twilight of twice-born cherubim made of your throne indeed a mercy seat. And this last, the Tower of Ivory, mystical rose, or risen from play at your pale raiment's hem. God, grown adventurous from all time's repose, up your tall body climbed as an ivory tower and kissed upon your lips a mystic rose. I will repeat that verse. Arisen from play at your pale raiment's hem, God, grown adventurous from all time's repose, up your tall body climbed as an ivory tower and kissed upon your lips a mystic rose. She now becomes the mother of God. All other mothers, when they have the children in their arms, say, there is heaven up there. The Blessed Mother looked down to heaven. But it is not easy to have the vocation of being the mother of the High Priest. And thus we come back to the beginning of this retreat. Mary is not a priest. She belongs to the royal priesthood, but she was a victim. And when she presents her child to the temple, there was no generation gap when Simeon, the old priest, spoke his nunc and was ready to be dismissed and to go to God. Because he said to her, A sword thy heart shall pierce. Now there are two Greek words for sword. One is a little dagger. The other is the word ramphi, one of these great, big, long crescent swords. And that's the one that is used in the original of the Gospels. A sword will pierce thy heart. And who will hold the hilt? Her son. So she knows she's destined for victimhood and suffering. Then at the age of 12, which is the legal age of a child among the Jews, or rather 13, not 12, she brings the child to the temple. He's lost. Many boys at 12 want to run away, and the divine child was no exception. And during those three days of loss, the Blessed Mother came to know what sin is. For sin is the loss of God. 
she had lost him. And she finds him on the third day. In a land where the father was supreme, it is the mother who speaks. And she says, son, that must have been the normal everyday name she gave him, son. Son, why hast thou done so to us? Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Thy father? And he checks his mother. He's practically saying to her, have you forgot the Annunciation? He's not my father. There's my father. And I am on his business. This is the only father I have. And Joseph disappears. We never hear again of him in sacred scripture. At the age of 13, every Jewish child becomes a son of the commandments. He is empowered to teach. That really is the true meaning of the sacrament of confirmation. It is a kind of a puberty rite. All pagan peoples have puberty rites in which they, uh, the tribes can say, this day you are a man. And so a youth passed the line, no longer a boy, today you've grown up. Today we have no demarcation between the young and old. We have the longest juvenility in the world. And then we have the old imitating the young. And those that are not bald wear long hair because they want to feel young, and then the young people have to wear their long hair longer in order to get away from the old men. And so we have no, no difference between juvenility and maturity. But the problem is, why is it that the gospel speaks of our Lord at the age of 12? Why not 13? I asked many Jewish rabbis throughout the country, and none of them could give the answer until I found a rabbi in Toledo, Ohio, who said, oh yes, he said, we had one exception. If the father was dead, then the child could become a son of the commandments at the age of 12. And in your case, because you believe that Christ was born of a virgin, and therefore he had no earthly father, he became a son of the commandments at 12. We come now to the marriage feast of Cana. Our blessed Lord is beyond the Jordan, gathering together some of his disciples. Our blessed mother is at the marriage feast. The whole description of this marriage feast in John smacks of the Old Testament. Six, the imperfect number, watering pots for the impossible washing to be purified. And our blessed Lord now comes from beyond the Jordan to this little village of Cana, and our Lord had just gathered up his disciples. It was like a meeting of the Old and New Testament. Our blessed lady being the daughter of Zion. And the wine gives out. Now, why should the wine give out 
in a wine country. Even though the marriage lasted for eight days, would they prepare enough wine? Why did the wine give out? Because our blessed Lord brought along all of his disciples. This is the first instance in Christian history of gate crashing. Naturally, the wine gave out when you get a lot of the disciples of the Lord around. So the Blessed Mother then says to our Lord, they have no wine. What a simple prayer. That's all. They have no wine. And there comes back the mysterious answer. Woman. Not mother. Woman. What is that to me? Now in the original Greek of the Gospel, this is the statement. What to me to thee? What to me to thee? In other words, we are in this together. Woman, what to me to thee? My hour has not yet come. In other words, our Lord is reluctant to work the miracle, to provide wine. He's saying, first of all, my hour has not yet come. This is not yet the moment when I declare my divinity, when I affirm that I am the Messiah, and when I put myself in the hands of men to be crucified. Now, is it your will, my dear mother, that I go to the cross? Are you going to be a mother that sends her son to the battlefield? Do you want me to work my first miracle and begin to go to my death to that awful hour? If that is your will, your relationship to me changes. Up until now, you were known to everyone as the mother of Jesus. But when I begin my public life, you will no longer be just the mother of Jesus. You will be the mother of everyone whom I will redeem. You will be the universal mother of mankind. You will be the mother that is spoken of in Genesis as the woman whose seed will crush the head of the serpent. And so I say to you, woman, we are in this together. Shall I begin the hour? Our Blessed Lady speaks seven times in Scripture. And this is the last word that she utters in Scripture. And what a beautiful valedictory it is. She says to the servants, Whatsoever he shall say to you, that do he. That is the effect of devotion to Our Lady. Devotion to Our Lady does not stand in the way of intimacy with our Lord. As a matter of fact, she pushes us. Whatsoever he says to you, that do he. And in the beautiful language of Richard Crashaw, the unconscious waters saw their God and blushed. Now we come almost to the end of the mother as mother. And we open up a new title. We begin to be prepared for the Blessed Mother under a new title. As on one occasion the Blessed Mother follows her son about 
He's preaching in the day and praying at night. And she sends a messenger to our Lord as he's preaching. And the messenger said, Your mother is waiting. He said, Who's my mother? Who is she? Can you imagine a priest on the day of his ordination? When someone announces his mother is there, and he says, Who's my mother? That's what our Lord said. Why did he say it? He's saying to her, she had already started him on his public life of redemption. And our blessed Lord is now saying, I do not recognize any ties of flesh and blood. We're beyond all of that. The only bond of relationship that I recognize is the relationship of the Spirit to the Heavenly Father. It is a question of obedience. He who does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my father, my mother, my brother, my sister. And that's the reason we're called fathers and why we're called mothers and sisters. We're supposed to be doing the Father's will. That's the new relationship. Which brings us to the last title, and this is one that we never talk about. And the reason we do not is because our books are generally not very profound and they just copy out of other books. The result is we have no depth in devotion to Our Lady. But she is now a spouse. Spouse. Not mother. Not that the motherhood is denied. I'm speaking rather of a new degree of revelation. When our blessed Lord is affixed to the cross, he looks down to the two most beloved creatures he has on earth, to Mary and John. Now, who is our Lord on the cross? He is the new Adam. You've often seen representations of crucifixions with a skull at the base of the crucifix. That is a representation of the old Adam. And Christ is the new Adam starting a new humanity. The human race is divided into two parts, the Adam race and the Christ race. So our Lord is the new Adam. Who is our Lord, the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross? The new Eve. Who did God say he was throughout the Old Testament? The husband of Israel. I, your creator, am your husband. All the scripture is founded upon the idea of nuptials. nuptials of man and woman in the Garden of Eden, the nuptials of Israel and God in the Old Testament, the nuptials of divinity and humanity in the Incarnation, now on the cross, the nuptials of the new Adam and the new Eve. Who did our blessed Lord call himself 
at the beginning of the public life, the bridegroom, the bridegroom. John the Baptist called himself the best man, who delighted to hear the voice of the bridegroom. All right, the new Adam is who on the cross? He's the bridegroom. Who is Mary at the foot of the cross? The new Eve, she's the bride. We're assisting at nuptials. Something's going to happen. So our Lord looks down from the cross and says, Woman, not mother, woman, there's thy son. And son, there's thy mother. In other words, here you have the Blessed Mother as the spouse standing for the church. Christ came to this earth to start an entirely new generation and a new humanity. And Mary now symbolized, stands for the church there. But until John is born, she's a, the new Eve. And John is just the beginning, he's described in the Gospels as the eldest, or the youngest brother, because Peter outran him, or he outran Peter to the grave. And so now John is the progeny, the beginning of the union. And here is the answer in this day and age to the question that is often asked, can women be priests? No! They cannot. Why? Our Lord said he was the word, and the word is the seed. The man gives the seed. The woman receives the seed, nourishes it, fosters it, cherishes it, and loves it. There's no question here of inferiority and superiority. That's nonsense. It's a sublime differentiation of function rooted in nature. And the opening of the side of Christ was almost like the seminal seed begetting the church. This is the great mystery that's enacted here. So that when our Blessed Mother appears later on at Pentecost, you see, she sort of fades out in a certain sense because she's surrounded by all the others. She's in the midst of them and she just simply becomes lost as the church, as the bride of Christ. And St. Paul constantly describes the church as the bride of Christ. And it's all the nonsense about the institutional and charismatic church that we hear from those who are very fond of novelties. It's just your, your wordplay. The, the church is not simply a, an institution. Here it is. It's what? Church is the bridegroom. The church is the, I mean, Christ is the bridegroom. And the church is the bride of Christ. And when we get to heaven, what are we going to assist at? The final nuptials of the bride and the bridegroom. And in the book of Revelation, read it sometime, you'll find the description of that marriage. We'll be attending a banquet, the banquet of life, when the bridegroom and bride will be surrounded by all of their children who are the saints of God. Is this a new doctrine I'm giving to you? Listen to St. Augustine. Like a bridegroom. Christ went out from his heavenly chambers. He went with the presage of his nuptials into the field of the world. He came to the marriage bed of the cross. 
and therein mounting it, consummated his marriage. For it was on a bed, not a pleasure but a pain. And when he perceived the size of his creatures, he lovingly gave himself up and joined himself to the woman forever. Christ is with the church, and the church is with Christ until the end. It is not an institution. It is the body of Christ, and that's the way we speak of marriage. In the altar, we say, this is the body of Christ. When a young couple are married, they're saying, take my body, take my blood. And here the body is the bride. And this is the great mystery of the church. And that is why, as we fall away from our rosary, our devotions to Our Lady, we cease to love the church. It is that simple. Be devoted to her. Never let a day go by without saying the rosary at least once. If you drive a car, the little knobs in the wheel are to remind you of the rosaries. They're the beads for driving. If you play dummy at bridge, you can always get in a decade. Walk into the store. The rosary is, to my mind, a supreme ambulatory prayer. And walking alone is just simply talking to our lady. It is repetition, is it? I was once instructing a convert class of about 200 people in Washington, D.C. And some woman came in by chance one evening, stood in the back of the hall, and she came to me afterwards and she said, after hearing your instructions on the rosary, now I will never become a Catholic because I find that when anybody says something over and over again, he's not sincere. I don't believe them. I don't trust them. I said, who's this man with you? She said, my fiancé. Does he love you? Yes. I said, how do you know? Well, he told me. What did he say? He said, I love you. When did he tell you? As we came in the hall. When did he tell you before? Well, he told me last night. He tells me every night. I said, don't believe him. <laughs> He's repeating the same thing. No, we're living in a different moment of time, in a different space, and so we can say over and over again, I love and therefore, restore your devotion to Our Lady, for we are her children, and we say to her in the language of Mary Dixon Fair, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just a little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometimes, gently on your knee? Did you sing to him the way Mother does to me? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world? And, oh, did he, did he cry? 
Do you think he cares if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know. Lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. Friends, There is a popular song or else a poem that tells how boys are made, girls are made, and what they're made of. Girls, it is said, are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. And boys, boys are made of snips and snails and puppy dogs' tails. And what are mothers made of? Tonight, if it pleases you, we will try and tell you how mothers are made. And we'll go a long way back because it took a long time to prepare for mothers. And we already wrote on our blackboard the plan that we will follow to save the time and trouble of writing it. First of all, we will tell you the cosmic preparation for motherhood. And it takes three steps to prepare for motherhood. Now understand, these three steps do not make mothers, they only prepare for mothers. One, here this seems very high hat, but in the end it's very simple. Interiority of generation, that's one condition, prepare for a mother. Care of the young, and the worth of the individual as well as the worth of the species. When these three things are prepared for, then something else has to be added to make a mother. And finally, we will say something about the ideal mother. The first condition for making a mother through the long evolution 
of the centuries is what is called interiority of generation. In the physical order, a flame lights a flame, a torch a torch. In the lower life, for example, the amoeba, there's a fission and a splitting. And the young life begins just simply by breaking off from the parent cell. And then when you get a little bit higher, there seems to be a closer relationship between the parent and the child. But there never could be a mother in this world unless we finally came to a point where there was an intimate, close, and vital relationship between the body of the mother and the body of the young. And it took centuries to prepare for this interior act of generation. The poor crabs, for example, that we know of, some of them go down to the sea and lay their eggs. They could never be mothers in the modern true sense of the word. Then in addition to that, nature had to prepare something else, too. Namely, the care of the young. We realize that this universe of ours is full of orphans, namely the young that are begotten and completely forgotten. For example, the trees bear fruit, and the fruit lives an independent existence from the tree. Or you ascend a little bit higher, perhaps nature is kind to butterflies, because the butterflies never have to see how ugly is their young, at least at the beginning. And then there's the care of the young manifested a little bit higher in the hens. And any boy who ever had to go out and gather eggs in a barnyard or a crib as I did when I was a boy will never forget a cackling, setting hen. And you begin to know what an old hen is by trying to gather eggs. After all, you can't blame the hen. Never can find anything where she lays them. But there is such a very fine devotion for the young in the hen that our blessed Lord himself used that as the supreme example of patriotism and love. He said, as the hen gathers her chickens under her wings, so he would gather us. How often would I have gathered you? And finally, the worth of the individual as well as the species. In the lower orders of evolution, there does not seem to be much care for individuals. They perish for the thousands. What matters is the species. But if mothers are ever to come into the world, there has to be a stamp of worth placed upon individuals. And that is why, as you mount up the evolutionary scale, you will find that there are fewer that are being produced at a time in order that there can be individual care. I once heard Sid Caesar give an imitation of a fly. And he was buzzing around. He went down to the sink, found it clean, and... So he went down to the sink in the restaurant where it was dirty and he bumped into another fly named Helen and said, hello, Helen, haven't seen you in about four weeks. How are you? Oh, fine. How are the children? Fine. How many do you have now? Four and a half million. <laughs> well, after these three conditions are fulfilled, we still do not have a mother. Just as I have to walk away now to have my angel operate, so too something else has to happen in the world before there can ever be a real mother. Up to this point, there's just a cosmic evolution. 
And there could never be a mother until love came into the world. And now follow through the three steps. How produce this interiority of generation in a mother? Not as it's done in an animal. In an animal, what is born and begotten is a result of cyclic responses, seasonal urges, sex, erotic impulses, these are not enough to make a mother and to beget a life within. When you come to human beings, there must be no ravishing, no stealing away of the worth of the person. If a mother is to be made, what is begotten within must come from a free act of the will in which a woman submits freely to the love of a man. This is the poet Browning put it. Our souls are one. Now let our bodies be one. We might almost say that the generation and interiority of it begins in the mind and in the soul with love. All love tends to an incarnation. When you look at generation this way, it is not to push from below. It is a gift from above. For in the great Hebraic tradition, we read a line where God speaks and says, Shall I that give generation to others myself be barren? saith the Lord. There's generation in the Godhead. And that great generation descends and comes down to the mother. And the interiority of generation is so noble and so sublime that the mother can say to the young that is within, take Eat. This is my body. This is my blood. And something else was needed to make a mother besides the inferiority of generation, and that is a care for the young. There's not enough in the animal kingdom to make a mother. Because all that you have in the animal kingdom is a care of the body. But in a child is a soul. The father and mother cooperate to make the body. But God cooperates with them to make the soul. And hence... For a mother, there has to be not only the long care of the body, but the longer care of that young mind. It does not take long in the animal order, for example, to generate and to develop the brain of a monkey. Because the monkey brain does not have very much to do. 
But it takes a long time to develop the mind of a child. The inculcation of ideals, virtue, purity, honesty, and patriotism. This is a new kind of care that one does not find in the lower part of the cosmos. And what a tremendous responsibility devolves upon the mother. For the child that is given to her is a so much clay. And she has to mold it in order that may be fashioned as a child of God. For when that child was born to her, there was a crown that was made in heaven. And woe to that mother. The crown is ever empty. But there's something else that is needed to make a mother. And that third factor is the worth not of an individual, but the worth of a person. In the animal order, you have individuals. In the human order, you have persons. The difference between an individual and a person is this, that individuals are replaceable. Persons are not. For example, you go to buy oranges at a store, and you say, no, this one is bad. Give me another. But you cannot say that about children. child is a person. Unique incommunicable, irreplaceable. That is why there's sorrow, such sorrow in a mother when one is lost. It is a person, an immortal soul that is lost. That incidentally is why every mother gives to the child a name, dignity, uniqueness and a part. There is no greater refutation in the world of communism than a mother. Because communism says there are no persons. We're just individuals. We're like individual grapes. And as grapes have the life ground out of them for the sake of the wine of the communal state, so too they would destroy persons. But every mother in the world arises to proclaim, this child of mine is not an individual and may not be submerged in any collectivity of a state or a race or a class. This child is unique. He has a name. He is my son. That's how mothers are made. Love that begets a life within. The care of the young. The soul of the young. And the worth of the person that is born. Now there ought to be some great ideal mother, too, upon which all other mothers have been patterned. For a mother is too noble to be without an ideal. And there was such a mother once. Every mother generates because she submits to the love of a man. There was a mother once 
conceived because she submitted to the love of God. One day out from the great white throne of light, there came an angel of light, descended down over the plains of Esdraelon, passing by the daughters of the great kings of the east, and came to a woman kneeling in prayer and said, Hail, full of grace. These were not words. They were the word. The word was made flesh. She, the mother, came like a living saborium, bearing within herself the guest who was really the host of the world. This was the greatest love that the world ever knew. The love that came down into a woman and ended in an incarnation. And mothers, too, in their care of the young have an ideal, too. Animals care for the bodies of the young. Mothers care for the bodies and the souls of the young. And the souls of the young come from God. And there was once a mother who cared for God himself. She cared, first of all, for his body. And she wrapped him in swaddling bands. She cared for his soul, his mind, for he was subject to her. What a lesson for children to realize that here was a child that was subject to the mother, but the child was the creator. There's not a mother in all the world who, when she picks up the life that has been born of her, that does not look up to the heavens to thank love itself for prolonging itself and making the world young again. Here was a mother, a Madonna, who did not look up, but who looked down to heaven and found heaven in her arms. But then finally there was the worth of a person. And every earthly mother gives a child a name because that child is unique. And it was fitting, too, that this mother's child be given a name, and the name was given by an angel. And his name was called Jesus. And why? What did it mean? It meant Savior, because he would save men from their sins. 
not save them from economic insecurity, would save them from all the effects of psychosis and neuroses that trouble the world. Save them from their guilt. That was his name, an irreplaceable name. And of all the thoughts that one reads about mothers, one is struck particularly by a thought that is given to us by Bishop Oxenham in a work that he wrote on this mother of whom I'm speaking. Bishop Oxenham was talking about a statement of Whistler. You remember Whistler painted the famous picture of his mother. And on being complimented about the picture, Whistler said, you know how it is. One tries to make one's mummy just as nice as one can. Well, then, since here is a child who made his own mother, we can understand that he made her just as nice as he could. Just as nice as God could make a mother. And then when he became a babe, here, he climbed up her body as an ivory tower to kiss upon her lips. A mystic rose. And to that mother we say, in the language of Mary Dixon Fair, lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometime? Gently on your knee? Did you sing to him the way mother does? Did you ever try telling him stories of the world? And oh, did he cry? You think he cares if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me. For you know. Lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. God love you.